This is Thomas DePolo. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. So in this game of ours, Delta Green, we've had discussions for the last several years about how often it is that the game becomes a bug hunt or ends in a gunfight or has some other combat encounter in it. And that's, you know, maybe that's inevitable, maybe it's not. But one thing that I've been thinking about is approaching it from a different direction where instead of, or in addition to thinking of other solutions to make the scenario more diverse than just blasting everything this is the other side of the coin which is how do we make the actual encounters more varied and interesting because something that i remember from the original delta green game is that i think most of those scenarios were written with the tacit assumption that you would be fighting a battle at some point and rather than you know trying to push against that they said how do we make the battles as wacky and interesting as possible so for example the fight at the end of new age where you're in the satellite in zero gravity orbiting a living planet and you have to go through teleporters to find the enemies or the fight in dead letter where you're stuck in a three-way battle between the nazi wizards and their late commandos and the zombies i can think of a monster with an interesting set of abilities uh in new delta green uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Will, but the monster in Viscid has a pretty serious health regeneration ability, but at the same time, it takes damage from sunlight or ultraviolet radiation, and any HP it loses from that does not get healed back. So the way you're supposed to kill it is to just expose it to UV light long enough that it's weakened for you to kill it with other weapons. Yeah, that sounds right. There's there's some kind of an interaction with incoming damage and ultraviolet light that in some way negates or switches off or is uh, not subject to its ability to regenerate. You're, you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah, I like the idea of um, giving the enemies things to do other than just shoot. Like, I know Dungeons & Dragons uses, like, the lair actions for really big monsters, like dragons. So, like, they have their own stats and they have their own attacks and their own abilities, but every turn or whatever it is, they can do something that affects the whole battleground, like open up, you know, magma geysers or something else that, like, affects the actual gameplay, uh, the actual encounter, like, area. And, like, so obviously, unless you're fighting a dragon in Delta Green, like, say you're fighting a bunch of goons. Which you might. Yeah, which you could. Well, Lord, Lord Dragon. Like, say you're fighting a bunch of goons in a warehouse. One of the goons could turn on a bunch of the automated, or in a factory, one of the goons could turn on all the automated um, conveyor belts. And all of a sudden, you have that to deal with, and that could be an advantage or disadvantage. Or, you know, picture the gunfight in Die Hard 2 in the luggage area. Something like that. Yeah. That's a neat way to make combo. Why, why, why did that luggage area have, like, a set of crusher pins anyway? Because it's fucking badass. The it thing, seems like an OSHA violation. thing that I've been doing is when you have a group of guys with guns, give to them some other ability that is more interesting. So when I did uh, Box Spring Hog, I came up with, you know, okay, here's a group of, of cultists. They've got M14s or, you know, pistols or whatever. But, you know, this one... Uh, spits a cloud of acid that causes blindness that you can only remove with a first aid test. Uh, this one will, when she plays this violin, 
do a small amount of permanent strength and constitution damage because it melts the tissues in your body. And that type of thing that is very scary to a player because it does permanent, it inflicts a permanent injury, but doesn't actually damage your health in the same way that being shot at does is a way to radically change what people's priorities are. It's like how in Darkest Dungeon, when you're fighting the pig people, there are the large pigs that do extreme amounts of damage and stun you and make you bleed out. And then these tiny little pigs that do nothing but vomit all over you. And the little pigs don't inflict that much damage and don't inflict that much stress. But each time one of them vomits on you, there's a chance that it gives you a disease, which is permanent until you get it cured. So it completely changes what your priorities are in that encounter. And trick is that this is stuff that you should be able to learn through investigation before you interact with them, so that that way it's a meaningful decision of what to do about the enemy instead of just being completely blindsided. Definitely. There's got to be a way to learn what's going on, or else it's just a bunch of gotchas. And then you're just like, well, this is silly. Now what's happening? I like that. I know. So I know you can use like the firearm skill to represent, like if you're fighting a bunch of, um, you know, crappy. You know, terrorists AK 47s and no training, you could just give them a really low skill. Um, but you could also have, you could also vary the tactics between, like, you know, uh, a Delta Green kill team who might, like, shoot and move and be really accurate and call shots and flashbangs, and, like, a terrorist group or a bunch of cultists who might all spray and pray and they might, you know, all fire at the same target in cover, or, like, may, may not be the most tactical sounds. So you can kind of think about, like, how would these guys actually fight? and make them fight that way and make it a little more interesting and dynamic rather than just take all the optimal shots. There's two ways to, to tell whether an NPC is going to make an intelligent decision or make the obvious decision, and that's the NPC's intelligence and the NPC's sanity. Because but Definitely, yep. Because one of the things that I always complain about in this game is how there's no consequences for being zero sand for NPCs. Like, the books are full of examples of people who act completely normal. But then one thing I was thinking about when I was reading Through a Glass Darkly is how Adolf Lepus, the final boss of Enero Delta, is a zero-san NPC, and it actually does manifest in ways that are genuinely damaging to him. Like, there's all just, just this petty shit that he does. Like, he'll pull, he'll pull out a gun and shoot a TV because it made a sound he didn't like in front of a room full of people, and then not even realize he's doing it. But then the real insidious thing is that because he's a psychopath, he can't defocus from stuff. He can't just say, this isn't worth it, I'm wasting my time. He just has to keep to keep going until he gets killed, which is actually, um, like, that's an actual real problem that that type of personality has, is that they are, you know, people say they're, you know, very, very cold and calculating, except that they can't just let shit go. So, like, one of the one of the ways that you can decide, you know, who does a monster attack is who did the most damage. Obviously, I think that I think that's something that most people who run D twenty based games have incorporated into their calculus. But if you're running an NPC that's a little smarter, you're going to target have them target the guy with the biggest weapon, or if they're really smart, they target the guy with the no with no weapon because that guy's the one who's really obviously up to something. You know, it's like in uh, Men in Black. Who do you shoot in that room full of the creatures? You shoot the eight year old girl with the quantum physics tech book. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the fun. Can be a function of like a different enemy might take you take those. A different enemy would make that choice in different ways. So if you can telegraph that, or if you can show show the you know PCs why that's happening, how that's happening, it can make it really interesting and like a memorable encounter. I'm also thinking like somebody who's kind of off the deep end or a little psycho psychopathic. That's not the word. Um, psychotic. There we go. There you go. <laughs> they they might 
like if they kill an agent, they might keep shooting that agent just to like really like you know get their rage out. What is interesting is that one it, on the one hand it gives the other agents breathing room, but I I think you might take extra sand damage for seeing like a, your friend killed and then also seeing them like you know shot again or mutilated again or shooting, you know, shooting in some way. Shooting a downed enemy is not psychotic. Shooting a downed enemy is common sense because in both real life, but especially in games, if you don't confirm the kill, the kill confirms you. I don't think I'm the only one who's played Pathfinder or 5th Edition, and because we didn't do confirmation kills on enemies, they got back up when the other cleric channeled. I've never had that happen, but you're not wrong. Yeah. But if it means the difference between, you know, like, say the, the, the psychopath, you know, shoots an agent in the head, you know, kills the agent, and then stands there for another round, just like emptying a whole magazine. That would be maybe like an in character or anything to show this guy's just nuts, rather than like somebody who's doing like a one, you know, one extra tap to the head or something. The other question I think that comes up in all games is whether the enemy should continue to strike at a downed opponent or whether they should refocus to people who are still threats. Because most games will have some kind of down but not out system where you can be knocked unconscious but not killed. And so the question is, do the enemies recognize that you're out of the fight and focus their efforts on killing people who are a threat? Or do they say, we need to make sure this guy doesn't get back up? Well, I think that question is answered differently for different types of enemies. Um, so I think, again, I think getting into the mindset of your enemies, or even if you're writing something, having a little blurb but how they would how they would do combat rather than just, oh, they have 80 firearms and they have guns. Explaining that they're, what their tactics are can be really helpful. Do you think uh, an intelligent versus a non-intelligent enemy would be more likely or less likely to do a confirmation kill? Uh, an unintelligent enemy is more likely to like grab a body and drag it away to eat or to start eating it right there or do some other kind of scavenger or, or predator animal tactic. A human size target who kind of knows what they're doing will probably leave you alone after you drop whereas if they're if you're if you've got an if you're fighting an actual professional you have to play dead because otherwise they are uh trained to shoot until the threat goes away i think i'm thinking of it in terms of like personality traits that you could discover through investigation an enemy that is notably more vengeful or driven to just see a specific task through to the end for one reason or another is probably more likely to confirm the kill as opposed to shifting focus to people who are still capable of shooting at it. Yeah, and you can also modify it based on how the players have acted towards them in the past because there are people in this world who probably wouldn't do a confirmation kill on someone who they didn't know or some random person, but if they were subject to a continual campaign of targeted murder by the federal government through secret agents of an illegal conspiracy, those people are probably more likely to, when they get their hands on someone, make sure that that person does not escape alive. You know, that the players, it's a, if the players are going to go super aggro, the enemies are going to respond in kind. Uh, the other one I was thinking of is there are all kinds of fun ways to make these back and forths more thematically interesting without necessarily having that much effect mechanically like one one that i thought of is is a defensive property where every time you you attack you deal damage to a target it cries out in the voice of one of your bonds to stop attacking it and then you lose oh, points I remember that, that one, one. That one was i love really that one that. 
I made a whole I made like a whole list of these because I I was just thinking about what kind of special powers can you just sprinkle in? Because my my favorite format is to do not necessarily like one tough monster, but more like a group of I always call it the group of robot masters, where it's a um, a small or medium sized group of NPCs, each of which has a different power. Because I think that's the most fun. And I know that Tom, you also did this a lot with your um, early scenarios and even your more recent ones. Yeah, that was part of the fun of the burglar monks is that they all had their own different weird shtick and their different their different set of powers. Well, plus we've we've seen a, a, a single big monster just gets action economy to death. So it's either got to have a bunch of rules that let you break action economy, or it's going to have a way to single people out or whatever. So it's a the easy solution for that is to just have it be a bunch of enemies. So it's, you know it's that, a logical conclusion. That is true. If you're going to use one monster and give it cool stuff to do you really have to make it more survivable in order to stand up long enough to get any of the cool powers off there are creatures in the book that do that like the the dimensional shambler negates damage from us it, it can negate damage from one person on any given turn so you're never going to have more than n minus one people attacking it where n is the number of players but you can do other stuff. Like I had one where I did when I did the the bronze colossus, the ancient uh, Mycenaean cyborg creature. They came out of the the jar to uh, hunt people in the museum. Uh, it had two actions per round. It did one on one. On, I think it was like one on dex count fourteen, and then one on seven. But because it's a giant metal jar filled with meat, it has gig- these gigantic cooling fins on its back. And if you destroy the fins, it loses its extra action because it's generating too much heat. For moving so fast. Yeah, have a go way. Oh god, what's the I've gotta find this weird thought experiment about a D D creature. Give me a minute. I got something in the meantime. Yeah. I like that a bit about the cooling fins because there are a couple of monsters in the book where it specifically says that called shots have no special effect on them. But yeah. there are no monsters so where called shots do have any special effect. The whole thing about called shots having no effect is just so annoying because it's n- nothing. Nothing reinforces. I'm just fighting a big block of HP with no interesting properties. Like no matter where you shoot it, it takes the same damage. Because you're reading like, okay, you know, here's this giant deep one. He takes the same damage no matter where you shoot him. Well, shouldn't I be able to like shoot him in the lure so he can't flashbang me, or shoot him in the gills so that he, you know, has trouble swimming underwater? Like, there's there's more imaginative ways to do this. And like you know, there's some there's I've seen examples that that do it in a more interesting way. Like in um, in esoteric enterprises, the angler turtle has lower AC if you specifically target the lure. But if you target the lure, it gets a bonus to bite you. Nice, that fucker. The angler turtle is some is some bullshit for another reason that we'll discuss at another time. Anyways, Kevin, did you figure it out? So I can't remember exactly what it was. I'm just gonna kind of have I'm gonna explain it best I can, and maybe we'll get there in the end. But the idea is basically that. If you want to have like a really cool orc boss, you basically just instead of instead of fighting, you know, say there's four players and you want to have an orc boss that's you know for your dungeon that's equivalent that needs four players to kind of fight it. So you could just have four cool orcs, but maybe you just want one boss, right? So you basically just you create a guy with you know four four attacks and four the HP pool four times, and every time you kind of cut him into quarters every time you do like 25 percent of his hp or whatever he loses something so as you wear him down he gets weaker and the the way the the guy explained it was really funny because that which i can't remember and hopefully if you if someone else knows correct me and if you're listening (laughs) tell me what it was um 
but it was a neat way to show like to make a big monster without just making a big monster that has a bunch of you know bunch of abilities you just kind of mash them together into one and then slowly start but you know dissecting them i i remember this and the way that he was explaining it was that he wasn't he was just repeating himself and refusing to explain and thinking he was really clever for it it's possible but, but yeah could, that's a that's, that, that's a classic that is a classic boss design thing that harkens all the way back to like the, the old ass console rpgs like every friggin' boss in chrono trigger does that that's a really good there's no reason you can't apply that to a to a tabletop rpg i don't know about delta green though because delta green is always a game that i felt I know that we we we've we've talked we've, we've tried to talk before about you know what level of of quote unquote balancing should you be doing. I think that there's basically two types of balance. There is does it does it need to be fair and does it actually achieve the design goal that you set out to do? Like I on the one hand I don't think that things need to be fair, but on the other hand I think that they do need to like don't instantly delete the players because then you're not actually playing the game and don't you know don't make something that's completely invincible unless you have something else to do in the scenario. Like if you make the thing completely invincible in the scenario, it shouldn't be about fighting it. And when I think of like increasing HP and number of attacks, specifically commander's number of players, um, I would say that if that's what you're going to do, that should actually be an ability that exists diegetically in the game world. Like, you know, maybe it's a monster that creates duplicates of whoever's in the room with it. So if you fight it one on one, it's easy. But if you fight it with with a people a group of four, then you're in some serious trouble. And you have to find and then you have to figure out that it has that ability through either research or by encountering it previously. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's definitely a D and D you know boss fight style mechanic. But you could kind of use the same idea. Um, I do like showing the players that that's what's happening. That's really smart. Yeah, one thing that I have thought about a lot, or increasingly, maybe not a lot is how do you find fun ways to demonstrate what it is that the bad guy does that don't just instantly delete the players? Because it's, you mm-hmm. know, it's all well and good to, to like TPK people or whatever, but if, the, if you're trying to make the encounter more interesting, it's more interesting if people have to work to come up with a counter to something bad than to just be completely blindsided and annihilated by it. So that's one place that I've gotten a lot of value. And I've just, I've just in general, been having a lot of fun with the doing prequels to scenarios uh like you get you start off playing as these four um grad students who are drunk at the night of the museum event at the university and you are going to go into the basement and knock shit over because you're intoxicated and then you encounter the monster and then the players actual characters show up to deal with the issue and that's been fun because it shows the players as long as you come up with a plausible way that that information could find their way back to the group, like one of them survives, or there's a video or something, like an Iconoclast, then... Yeah, or they're live streaming, yeah. Yes. And then the thing that you can do, especially if you're running like a, a format where the players have different characters they get to choose from, you can let them choose characters after they've seen the, the footage, because Delta Green would choose the people who would be most capable of dealing with the issue. I think, I think one of the... Like, I think the reason that the idea of like lethality and things that are immune to X lethality exists is a ham-fisted way to stop people, uh, big monsters from being action economy to death. But I always thought it didn't work that well because you can't really tell what's going to work on a monster. But having other ways, like you mentioned, having the cooling fins that break off, like if you had like a really armored monster, you could blast the armor off of it, like make it more weak, like a way that shows the players that are making a difference. 
that might be a neat way to also kind of make things more dynamic. Yeah, that's something I've said before, um, that as handler, you should try to always be communicating with your descriptions of the outcome of events. You know, if rather than just, oh, you know, you're, you're, the, the gunshot does nothing. That's that's not helpful. Whereas you know the the, the bullets like flattened or they, they go right through or it it seems to phase out when the bullets hit it or something or when half of the bullets hit or some some something like that. You got to give some kind of a clue to what's going on so that the agents can make an, an informed decision about how to proceed and what possible avenues of circumventing that they can attempt. Just saying it does nothing doesn't really help. Yeah, I always. Well, I, I sometimes get annoyed when, when every time a character doesn't actually like, shoot someone, they want to narrate this like super badass, uh, you know, action movie style way of doing it. But that said, there's a time and a place, and when you're trying to give someone information, that's when you want to explain how things are happening. Yeah, more dis- well, more description isn't always better, but it is some. It is often helpful to have that little extra level of you know theater of the mind because. Another thing we often said in the show, you're not actually there in the moment. You know, it's kind of, you, you got to kind of paint the mental picture and you can only really go based on what other people at the table are telling you. I'm really curious if anyone's listening, what they have done or would do or have had done to them to make combat more than just, a, you know, I shoot, they shoot, I shoot, they shoot, one of us dies. Um, I yeah. feel like there's others out there and I want to know. Yeah, uh, I, I also would like to hear combat anecdotes, tactical tactical breakdowns from our listeners that would be cool to hear about and i hope uh helpful to people i think monster powers are one aspect of it uh i think a big part of it is just something needs to change every round of a fight so whether that's you get a fumble and you capitalize off that or there's something in the environment you can take advantage of oh you know actually that gives me an idea tom uh you're right that something needs to change every round. Otherwise it's literally as Kevin just said, as I shoot, you shoot, I shoot, you shoot. So maybe one thing we could say to the handlers in our audience is if, if you find that a fight is falling into that paradigm, then perhaps the opposition should do something different to change things up, you know, like kick over a barrel or jump out a window or climb onto the ceiling or just something to make, to, to change things up a little bit. When I wrote the, scenario blood pus and vinegar about the spanish Great civil title, war by the way. spanish civil war scenario and it features a battle between the players and a platoon sized element and because that would be really boring to roleplay turn by turn what i said is after the first two rounds figure out who's winning and either tell the players you're probably going to die if you don't retreat or have the enemies retreat based yeah. on who based on what the way it's going only run that combat until you know, run run the combat for as long as it's interesting, and then say you can stick this out if you want to, but it's not going to go well if you do. Or say the other guy realizes that he's not winning and he's going to pull back and come up with a different plan. So I I like the idea of enemies retreating because you can also because one it's realistic. Not every bad guy is going to fight 100 yeah. percent until they die every single time. I do think you got to kind of watch out for making it. You you want to do it in a way that doesn't kind of steal the victory from the players. You want to make it like a like a good fight rather than they oh, they got away again. We got to do this again. Um, so maybe like if they they run and they leave a clue behind, or they run and they you know disengage in some way that the players it stays a victory. You know what I mean? 
See, that Melon has said something that kind of reflects my thinking as it evolves about fights. A lot of time, if I'm pre-planning a fight, I will pre-plan some kind of timer into it. And then you win not by killing all the bad guys. You win by just surviving to the end of it. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm, because I know he's not here. I'm just gonna say uh, progress clocks. Uh, I was just gonna say that. Dark. Fuck you. Let's just get that out of the way now, so Jake can rest easy. But definitely, yeah. And that timer doesn't need to be time. It could be you know damage dealt, number of guys down, you know things captured, you know intelligence found, signals jammed, you know whatever. Make it interesting. Make it something the players can see, and you got yourself a win. Like a, a certain number of rounds passed is an easy way of doing it, but there are other criteria you can use to just determine, like, okay, the bad guys go home at this point. Yeah, or they overwhelm you at this point. And yeah, make it obvious true. that you're getting, you're like, hey, if you, they if, got if, what if they they, came if this for. wall's breached in two more places, you can't stop them from getting in. Oh, crap. I wrote a set piece called The Trolley Problem, where the basic premise is that a bunch of cultists suddenly attack the players on a subway train and it only lasts for four rounds because that is the time it takes the train to go from one station to the other. Does it, does it happen on a subway in Boston? And if so, which, which colored line? Uh, I leave it vague enough. I think it's, it's the red. What were you thinking? Fire, right? I could do it. Yeah. I was going to say that could be, I should add that actually to the document. Like if you deliberately start a fire on the train then you can put, force them to the other end of the car <laughs> yeah i like that you called it the trolley problem i think i the original title was one way out and then you suggested the trolley problem i was like yeah <laughs> did that's I? What it's gotta, you did that was i showed the document to you guys and that was your first comment why did you call it the trolley problem <laughs> so it is one way out or the trolley problem amazing and Jake is actually, I believe he used that set piece in one of his scenarios. Or he, okay. at least, he at least mentioned it as something you could turn to if he didn't actually run it himself. All right, well, that's, uh, that's how to give yourself a spicy combat. Yeah. Yeah, they, just think about what is a way to make this more interesting than I roll firearms, you roll firearms. And to do that, you must give someone a reason to do something other than roll firearms. Yeah, there needs to be an element of dynamism in there. Good word. Or psychopathy. Psychopathy. All right. Psychopathy, dynamism would be a great operation name. (laughs) This is a good operation name. So, Tom, I have a hypothetical for you. Okay. Let's say your grandmother invites you to tea and... At T, she hands you a gun and tells you to shoot a co-host of the Green Box podcast. What do you do? Uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> well, first of all, what did you do to my poor granny? And second <laughs> of all, second of all, what kind of gun is it? Because if it's if it's a revolver, we could have a nice discussion about moral dilemmas while I load each chamber individually, and you all make cases for your lives. The correct answer is to kill all of us to make sure that you got the right one. <laughs> well, there you go. There's one end of the moral spectrum. You have to shoot yourself. It's the only moral choice. I was thinking about this. There was that game um, where you play as uh, you play as like death's assistant, and you have to choose who to who to execute. And like the streamer who was playing it was like agonizing over all the choices. And I was like, just just, just kill them both. Same game, actually. <laughs> I played that. It was pretty fun. Uh, death and taxes. Nice. Um, 
but this this intro calls to mind the dilemma we've had in Delta Green. Uh, Tom can give his answer at the end. Uh, that Delta Green has is like a game about making difficult choices and living in a world of doing rotten things. But the menu of bad things to do and choices to make must be richer than just whether or not you kill someone that you don't want to kill. Because that's a complaint that I have a lot, a lot of Delta Green is that it just boils down to roll firearms or various other murder skills until you get adapted in order to get out of all the problems. And we know that there's a better way. There's got to be other things out there that can challenge you to think about the consequences of your actions in ways besides killing somebody. Yeah, there's a, there's a. I mean, I, the 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 really cheap mode dilemma is to shoot somebody, but there's also, you know, that's not even the worst thing you can do to a person. You know, you could ruin their livelihood, you could ruin their life, you could uh, harm them in a way that leaves them, you know, maimed, scarred, physically or mentally. You know, those are all like worse, but maybe not worse than death, depending on you know where you believe. So part of it, I think, is framing it not as like an like I feel like a, a bad moral dilemma is when it's when the choice is obvious. Like I know one of the choices we talk we talk about in, in terms of the Delta Green word is the choice in uh, Last Things Last to kill Marlene or spare Marlene. That's not much of a choice because like she's not a redeeming character. There's no it's not a lot of value in like saving Marlene. You were a huge advocate of running last things last and then immediately metamorphosis and metamorphosis is a cool scenario but it kind of suffers from the same problem yeah and and when i run last things last i specifically make sure that i pick at least one or two agents who have some kind of moral failing and marlene tells them like for example you know like this character who is in the fbi and really wants to you know, or in the cia really wants to make a name for himself marlene is like i'll give you all the leaders of isis which makes it, at least for him, a better moral dilemma because he might say, well, if I stop ISIS, maybe that is more morally correct than if I you know, let her go, she kills people, but I stop ISIS, who's killing a lot of people. That, but, you, but I have to write, like, it's not part of the written scenario. You have to kind of throw that in you know, yourself. So as written, the, the dilemma isn't that great. But it's also an interesting area, so I'm not going to beat it up too much. But I like I like the what you've done with it, though, because you've made it an actual choice. It's gone from you have to kill this creature because it's fucked up, but you feel bad about it, to you are sacrificing something by destroying it. And by taking accepting the bargain, you are doing something bad, but getting a, a you might you might do something beneficial in return. It's an actual choice. It's a dile- it's an actual dilemma. And you, you can't go. You can't go the other. You can't go too hard that way. It can't be like, oh, she'll cure all cancer, because that's obvi- too obviously easy. It has to be something where like some of the characters are obviously going to say, that's there has to be a fight between the characters over it. So it can't be too obvious, like an easy scenario. I think whether or not it's an obvious choice is almost a symptom in a way, where the root cause is it's not actually an interesting choice. One of the choices leads to cool gameplay and then the other choice just shuts down the game and everyone goes home from there because in last things last specifically it's good what you've done kevin because you really need to provoke that choice and that argumentation in order to make it a climax yeah and i i think another important facet is you you a good moral dilemma means you don't have perfect foresight of the outcome it's not as easy as like 
for example, it's not as easy to shoot one of your co-hosts because you know a lot about them and you can maybe potentially pick in your mind who has value, who doesn't, but like shoot these two random people you have no, where like there is a right choice and a wrong choice, but you have no way to tell. That is a dilemma. That is a little more, it's a little more interesting because how do you recommend making that choice? I disagree. I think that if it's just a coin toss, then it's not a dilemma at all. It's just like, well, I guess I better kill them both. Well, I mean, some people feel that way, and some people would beat themselves up a lot more over that than a choice between, you know, a good guy and a bad guy. Philosophically speaking, um, and this is an axiom that I have often fallen back on and advised other people of when attempting to make a choice. If I can't tell the difference between the two choices, then there is no difference between the two choices. And if there is no difference between the two choices, it doesn't matter which one I pick. So it's not a dilemma. Well, there might be a difference, but the difference would be one option is more easy or convenient for that your character. That could indeed be a difference. The dilemma could be trying to ascertain if there is a difference. I like that. I just I do wonder realistically that if you were holding a gun, like if the stakes were so high, such as like ending another person's life or you know blowing up a building, building full of you know orphans or building full of you know whatever, like. That's an easy. That, that that's a really good axiom to have until it's like very very much someone's life on the line. And I do wonder how much that might fall apart as you start to, you know, pick that apart in your head. Which is honestly would be an interesting thing. Like I'd like to use a more dilemma in role playing because it forces someone to like dig into the character a little bit and actually, you know, not just roll the best stat, the best skill they have to finish the puzzle, but like make a choice based on their character, which is which can lead to really fun gameplay. I think what we run into is that just blasting away at the problem, you know, eliminating with with explosives or a car crash or whatever is the easy route, and finding the you know the more sophisticated solution to the issue is harder. And I almost wonder if that then it stops being a mortal dilemma because it's just put an effort to get like the pacifist ending or just roll firearms and pay the sand cost to get the cheap way out, which is kind of why I am trying to come up with choices that are not just kill versus not kill, but other types of thing that are unsavory or difficult to trade off against each other. I have an example in my head, but... Um, Tom, I know that you did some pre-reading before this episode to prepare some for us. Yeah, so yeah, so I bought a book a while ago called Fair Play, The Moral Dilemmas of Spying, and I started reading it recently, finally, just to see if that would give me any ideas for stuff I could pull into Delta Green. And a lot of the scenarios because it's based on actual case officer work, is about when it is or isn't moral to deal with the people, the spies you're recruiting. So not necessarily uh, not necessarily relevant to a game of Delta Green, but there were two scenarios that I thought you might get an interesting scenario out of. Okay, what's one of those scenarios? One of the scenarios is about whether it's ethical to go undercover as a journalist or a humanitarian aid worker, uh, a member of the religious clergy, some kind of non-combat, non-intelligence civilian profession, where if you are caught doing espionage work, you are potentially putting a lot of innocent people in harm's way, because then someone could theoretically accuse all those people of also being spies and uh, harass them or do worse to them for that. And I was thinking you could have a scenario overseas where everyone is under that kind of cover 
and you have to keep making the choice of whether to use your credentials and potentially put other people in harm's way if you're caught. It's not just a single choice point. You have to keep making that decision over the course of that scenario. Yeah, press your luck. I really like that because I know I have never confirmed this, but I believe it to be true. So if, if I'm wrong, you know, it's just it, just something I've heard many times in my career. But if you if you're a member of the if you're ever a member of the Peace Corps, it's almost impossible to get a security clearance because it's so hard. Because the Peace Corps goes so hard to distance themselves from any kind of government work because they need to be able to go in places where no one else can go and treat people, you know, with, with this level of, like, you know, they, they can't be associated with, you know, governments and militaries and things like that. So when you get out, it's like leaves kind of a permanent stain where a lot of security clearance type jobs or intelligence agencies don't want to even put you, like have you in because it's too, too much of a risk factor. And the author actually brings that up. He right. has his own commentary on all of these scenarios and on the humanitarian aid worker scenario, he specifically says his son applied for a job in the Peace Corps and the interview was going very well. And then they asked him if they if he had any connections to military or intelligence. <laughs> and he said, yeah, both my parents are retired CIA case officers and they immediately shut down the interview. Oh, uh, that sucks. But I can, I can see that, yeah. And I know the Bin Laden raid, the, the U.S. used... Um, they sent in some people in, under a fake, well, it was fake, but they did distribute some vaccines, vaccine program to get DNA from the household where they thought bin Laden was. Um, and that is, is a, like a gold standard of like how to fuck that up. Cause now in a lot of places in Pakistan, no one will get vac- vaccinated or go to vaccine programs because they assume it's a CIA plot. So potentially that, you know, long-term did more harm than good. Damn. I had no idea about that. Yeah. And even at the time it was, um, it was just, they were like, they wouldn't have done it for just anybody, but Bin Laden was such a high target, high value target that they, you know, they assessed the risk and, you know, went for it. But I do like this and just to bring it back to gameplay, I do like it in terms of Delta Green because it could be, because this kind of cover is a really good cover just because most people will assume that if you remember the clergy, you're not spying, you're not, you know, you're acting in good faith. So it's a great cover until it's not. So making them like press their luck, and get into increasingly more dangerous situations and then be, you know, in trouble would be really interesting gameplay, I think. Right. He says religious clergy have a reputation for being trustworthy. And if you're a journalist, you're doing a lot of the same I does anyway. You're going around places. You're trying to document things. You're trying to talk to people and find out what they know. Uh, was that robot for other folks? Can you give us that again? Okay. I think having Craig in the chat is fucking killing our frame rate because shit was fine before he got in the room. Tom, uh, yeah, try. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the book mentions that's why those professions are really sought after covers because clergy are really well trusted because journalists are expected to do a lot of the same stuff a case officer would do. They go around to different places. They try to talk to people, find out what they know. They document what's going on. I'll see if I can find and put, we'll put a link on the show notes. But there's a good, it's either Insider or one of the other YouTube channels where they have like an expert come on and react to movies where the movies part has their profession in it. And it's this really sweet little lady, but she was a CIA operative. She's actually married to the guy who got those like four Americans out in the Ben Affleck movie in Iran. Anyway, um, but 
it's funny because she's talking, you know, all the time. Oh yeah, we would put a put a bomb in the boot of a car, and you know, we would, you know, you know, grab a guy and blackmail him this way. And then there's a scene where somebody's in the clergy, or whatever, and she's like, "Nope, we would never do that." Like she just straight up is like, "Wouldn't happen," <laughs> you know, because it was such a such a taboo. I'll uh, I'll make sure we get a link in the notes. It's a pretty fun watch. Yeah, and he mentions in the book that there are certain restrictions in place to keep CIA officers or anyone in intelligence from impersonating those people, but they also have like a an emergency clause where if I forget who it is, maybe the president decides that it's vital enough to national security, they will hand wave it. No, sorry, it's not the it's not the president himself, I think. It's whoever is, like, the director of the CIA at the time. Yeah. So somebody pretty high up, yeah. Yeah, somebody high up can decide this is important enough. We're going to waive the rules for you. And then the second scenario I thought was really interesting was what the book calls a Trojan horse. And essentially, the scenario provided is, you know that a foreign country, China is example, wants to steal a certain kind of technology from the U.S. And that technology might be used for military purposes. It has plenty of military purposes, but it might also be used for civilian purposes. And so the plan is initially to screw with this country by allowing them to steal a deliberately sabotaged piece of technology. But if they use it for civilian purposes, it might fail catastrophically and end up with a bunch of civilian deaths. Do you still allow them to steal it or not? I like that one. That's good. That's sort of the, it's not unlike the famous dilemma faced by former UK Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Having having broken the Enigma code, uh, the, the intelligence service determined that there was a pending attack on, what was the name of the village? Uh, Coventry is the story that is, is, is the story that you're telling. Yeah, that's the one. And so the dilemma then was, you know, do you do you evacuate the town? Do you take precautions and thus let the let Germany know that you've broken their Enigma code, or do you do nothing and let those people die? Yeah, and he actually mentions Coventry in another scenario in the book about do you allow a terrorist attack or something else terrible to happen in order to protect a vital source of intelligence? But I was thinking with this one about the sabotage technology. That strikes me as like a good setup for a scenario and what I was saying before about having interesting gameplay for either side. Because if you let it go to the other country and you realize it's going to be used for civilian purposes, you could always, if you take the, the, the moral option, I guess, and try to save civilian lives, you could always have the scenario be about trying to steal it back or quietly informing someone on the other side, cluing them in as to what's going to happen, so they prevent it themselves. But on the other hand, if you just want to be a bastard and let that play out, the scenario becomes about killing any witnesses, covering your tracks, framing up a fall guy for what's about to happen. That's a good example of, you know, we talked about a dilemma where you don't know the outcome. Um, like, dressing as a clergyman, you potentially know one of the, the one, one outcome is bad because it ruins the clergy in this country forever. One outcome is good because you get away with it. But in this one, you know, there's there's more outcomes that you don't have a as as as, a, as ideal of a of a line on these, you know if it's used militarily and it breaks that's good for us but if they use it civil I was say civilianly but civilly, you know and it breaks and causes deaths but is there a way to you know rig it in a certain way so you don't really have as the perfect intelligence which I like. Have you read the whole book? Yeah, I just finished it today. 
I kind of powered through it in order to prepare for this. So uh, you did us a favor and posted the posted the table of contents, and there were two that I was interested in: uh, Kamikaze Dolphins and Tampering with U.S. Mail. If you recall <laughs> either either of those. I do. So Kamikaze Dolphins is about, like, the U.S. military has used trained dolphins for a bunch of different things in order to, like, detect mines and patrol harbors. The scenario posited in that one is essentially that, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, Iran has trained a bunch of frogman terrorists to plant bombs on different ships. So in the scenario presented, they plant one on a U.S. naval vessel, and then they also plant one on a civilian cruise ship, killing a couple of dozen people in between them. So U.S. intelligence decides in order to fight this threat, they're going to mount harpoons on trained dolphins, but the harpoons are also attached to bombs so that the dolphin swims up to the guy, sticks him with the harpoon, and then the bomb blows up, killing both the dolphin and the frogman terrorist in order to kill both of them, but save the civilians on the ship. Didn't they do that with dogs in World War One or Two? They'd run under, t- trying to run under tanks, and then they blow up the dog. There were two projects that we know about to weaponize animals to deliver explosives. One was the Soviet bomb dogs, and one was the American bomb bats. And both of them failed for the same reason, which was that the animals whenever the animals were dangerous and uncontrollable in this in the soviet case they had a tendency to turn around and run directly under the soviet tanks because they recognized (laughs) and in the american case a large number of the explosive bats got loose from the testing site and with the bomb collars attached and roosted in an enormous fuel tank but in the dolphin case i'd say fuck dolphins so I think that we, yeah. this, this is a classic example of what can happen when you put what you consider to be a moral dilemma in a scenario is that your players are people who are already programmed with opinions about morality. And sometimes those opinions are that dolphins like chimps and other near human creatures are bastards and that you shouldn't feel bad about blowing them up because they would do the same thing to you if they had the chance. I mean, I might feel bad, but I, if I'm going to weigh a human life over a dolphin life, a human wins every time. So, but that could be I, I would, interesting. I would worry that the dolphins would fucking do the same thing as the the as the the bats and the, the palm dogs. The, the, do, the dolphins would be like, "Yo, that like twelve year old swimming with his his family is a terrorist," and just fucking explode him. So that's an interesting point of view because it leads to two other thoughts I have. One is that there are a lot of the CIA and military guys who were asked for this book to, because each scenario has multiple people who offer commentary on it to, with their thoughts of whether or not it's moral. And a lot, in a lot of parts of the book, those guys will say, I don't really have an ethical problem with this. It's more just that I don't think it's a very good tactical or strategic <laughs> idea. Logistical problem. Yeah, it's more of a logistical problem or an operational problem than, like, one in my soul. And the other thought is that for that specific scenario, the author asked six people to comment. Five of them said, yes, it was moral. Dolphin lives are worth less than human lives. And the one person who said no works for people for the ethical treatment of animals. I strap a bomb to him. Dolphins, um, I think the main use of dolphins for military purposes, like demining and other various underwater engineering tasks that was my understanding yeah it used to be, we used to be except now we have 
underwater autonomous underwater vehicles that are so good that you wouldn't need a dolphin anymore. You just drop, you just send a few yeah. of those out and kill them, kill all the Iranians. There's a famous picture of the um of the a guy doing like the Bane CIA pose in a boat with a dolphin. Yeah. The dolphin has like the little locator beacon attached to its arm, and it's doing like the, you know how dolphins they always look like they're smiling and they're thinking about like fucking your corpse. Jesus. Not good people. Anyways, um, see, see, this is a different strategy. Instead of saying that they're, they're they're worth less than humans, I say that they are people, and therefore they have the capacity for right and wrong, and they always choose wrong. I was thinking of a different one because uh, I like this. I like I like the idea of all the commentary. I think that's probably what adds a lot of flavor to this book. I'm going to do a different fictional example. Uh, and your, your examples aren't fictional. I think some of these probably actually happened. But here's a fictional example. Um, I just finished reading a book called um, Use of Weapons. And it's okay. It's not my favorite book by the author. But there's a segment at the end that's super interesting the protect and I'm not going to spoil the ending, but I'll give you a, a taste of, of why I think this is relevant to the subject at hand. The main character is sent to this like backwater planet, and they tell him, "All right, you have to uh, take this like garbage country that's losing this war and make them win it." You're like, "You go go be a military advisor to them," and so he goes and he like teaches them about how to fight like combined arms warfare and fight encirclement battles and stuff. And he comes up with this cool strategy where it's like, "Okay, we'll just." It's really easy. We'll just like get them to overextend the supply lines. We'll just let we'll because they're they're really obsessed with taking the city that's not actually that important. So just just have everyone leave the city, let them come in, then just encircle them, and we win. And then, at like on the day of his victory, he gets a like an email from uh, his handler saying you weren't actually supposed to help them win. We just sent you down there to make it look like a good show. The treaty we just negotiated requires them to lose, stab them in the back, and give the country to the enemy. Wow, it's a dark book. Um, I think that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say how it ends, but I will. I do think you'd get a kick out of it, not because it's actually good, but because of a different reason. Um, I will say though that that is one that I do like for. Delta Green, because I think one thing that doesn't happen often enough in Delta Green, I can only think of a couple scenarios that feature it, is undercover operations. Yeah, I think at least one I know one we talked about, you're not a big fan of because it splits the party too much. Yeah, those can be tricky, but that's actually a really good framing for an undercover operation if you're going in as military advisors to someone. And then the 11th hour twist is, hey, you guys actually have to lose or get out of there. That's very reminiscent of... Ben Ages for manipulation, isn't it? Yeah. So, Will, the way that he becomes the military advisor to them is that um, his handlers actually seeded a prophecy on the primitive world that the Lisan Al Gaib would come to save them. Yep. Lisan Al Gaib, for those of you who are not familiar, is Chakabsa for the voice from the outer world. So that that, but I, I uh, Tom, I like I like where your head's at, but I'm thinking maybe we can twist this to a circumstance that's a bit more common for the average Delta Green adventure. And instead of saying you're a military advisor to this regime, which can happen in Delta Green, uh, how about we make it about your relationship with non-Delta Green law enforcement or some civil society organization or something that you are required to betray and destroy some of those people in order to advance your success in the Delta Green operation? Jesus. Well, now I'm imagining something like True Detective Season 1, where you're a Delta Green federal guy come to help in state or local officials 
and you're unraveling this weird conspiracy and you find evidence of an actual like far reaching conspiracy. And then suddenly your case officer comes down the line. Hey, we struck a deal with those guys you're investigating. You need to back off right now and get the local badges to do it too. When those guys are looking at, are searching for the people who like have killed their friends and loved ones and people they've actually known. I, I like the idea of partway through a Delta Green operation, uh, forcing the agents to unravel what they've put in, what the, all the plans they put into place. Um, as long as it isn't like a narrative undoing, but like force them to actually, like, hey, you know, you, you set you up this dead drop. I think that if it's going to be an actual dilemma, it can't be an omnipotent NPC who speaks with the voice of the person running the game telling them this is what you have to do. It has to be an actual choice. It can be there can be another option which is just carry out your mission as originally specified and ignore the case officer, tell him you didn't get his email or that you didn't feel like doing what he said, and that if he dislikes it, well, two can play at that game, motherfucker. Yeah, I mean I'm imagining a scenario where you've already set up the elaborate frame job on the fall guy, uh, and then you're presented with evidence that it's you know it's, it's either got to go a different way or if it goes that way it'll be worse and then you have to un unframe someone you've already done all, this, done all this work to frame or potentially just you know like unframe them because it's the right thing to do or you know still solve the mystery but let them take the fall anyway because it's not the right thing to do it might be an interesting moral dilemma i think that the average delta green player is probably more unwilling to frame someone than they are to kill them that's my that's my hypothesis is that people consider it just because the act of killing npcs and rpgs is so like blase to the average player i think that stuff that isn't killing might actually feel more impactful because it is mechanically distinct from the thing that you have done in every mechanically and narratively distinct from the thing that you have done in every game up to this point. So destroying someone's family or make taking their children away or um, framing them for a bad crime, destroying a, their career, things like that. I'm wondering if they, if that might be something that is genuinely more, the choice between doing that and not doing it is is less clear cut than the choice of killing someone or not killing them. How much of that do you think is because it's mechanically more difficult to frame somebody than just shoot them? That's true, and that gets back to what we said earlier about how a lot of moral choices are actually just dependent on what the players can get away with in the fictional world with the skills available to them. I think that in order for a truly competitive experiment, we'd have to find some situation where those options were equally possible to do like you yeah you wouldn't need to like do a bunch of die rolls to build a case against somebody as opposed to just one die roll to put explosives in the car yeah i mean you definitely have to make sure that there's not a clear mechanical advantage to either one because the agents are rightfully so going to pick the one that makes them roll less chances to fail so that's important and that might involve some negotiation back and forth because players may assume wrongfully or rightfully that if they want to say put a bomb in a car that you're going to make a roll for it, which is, but you may as well say, well, you have the car, you know, you have the car and you have 12 hours to do it. It's not going to, it's not hard. You have, you have 80 in demolitions, you don't need to roll for it. So there can be a little bit of negotiation there, kind of meta or out of character to say, you know, what are you trying to do? Here's, here's what's going to have to happen, but you can't, you can't get too much away because you can't boil the dilemma down to what's the best mechanics. It's a little bit, that can be a fine line to walk, I think. 
So, Tom, would you recommend this book for, for folks who want to write more interesting moral dilemmas, or is it more deeper background? Um, I don't know if it's necessarily good for RPG mining, just because a lot of it is focused on the actual like recruitment of spies as a case officer. And because it was published in 2006, so I think it's just a little bit outdated. But I would recommend it to anybody who wants to read up on spy stuff generally, sure. Yeah, I wonder what an updated version would say about internet stuff. Yeah. Modern internet stuff, yeah. Right, because part of it is that because it came out before Edward Snowden and everything, it kind of punt. It doesn't really have anything on mass electronic surveillance of the American public, which feels like it's one of the big moral questions in spying of the last couple, the last decade or so. Curiously absent, one might say. Hmm. Indeed. The author's background, I think you might, you might have mentioned, so forget, his background is that world. Chief. Yeah, it says right on the cover, he's the former chief of CIA counterintelligence, and apparently now he's yeah. a professor who teaches intelligence work and U.S. government affairs. So he certainly knows what he's talking about. Have right. any other thoughts on moral dilemmas? Or have you decided which one of us you're going to shoot? If none of you guys want to make another case... I think I've made my decision. I mean, how do you guys feel about Audacity? Because I was planning to shoot Craig. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. Goodbye, Craig.